Greetings from Charlottesville, Virginia, and welcome to Global Commerce Exchange. I'm Peter Millay, and I'll be your host for today's conversation at the crossroads of global affairs and the world of business. Our show is brought to you by the Center for Global Commerce at the University of Virginia. Now, let's get started. My guest today is Cassandra Enyan, a UVA McIntyre alumna who works for Google, based in Africa. While the sound quality of today's podcast might be a bit challenging at times, the good news is that our guest is working every day to improve the state of tech infrastructure all across the continent. In fact, since graduating from Columbia with a master's in international affairs in 2015, Cassandra has been working from Ghana to South Africa to expand internet accessibility and affordability for the continent's 1.3 billion consumers. Her work, together with that of her colleagues and others, is literally revolutionizing Africa, bringing digital access to farmers, small businesses, and consumers. This foundational digital infrastructure holds the promise of powering the economy forward, driving financial inclusion, digital banking and payments, and the exchange of critical goods, information, and services. Today, we have a rare opportunity to learn from someone who has a front row seat for what just might be one of the biggest stories of our time. Especially as a former student of mine, it is a true pleasure to warmly welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. So Cassandra, first things first, where are you today? I am speaking to you from Accra, which is the capital of Ghana um, in West Africa. It is where I currently call home. Okay, so I have to admit, I've never been to Ghana, certainly never been to Accra. So tell us a little bit about it. What's it like? Um, so, yeah, so Ghana, as I mentioned, is in West Africa. Accra is the, the capital. It is a city which is along the coast of Ghana, known for its... Um, um, I think the the music, the the food, um, the culture, um, and it's. I think Ghana is known throughout West Africa as a country that is very welcoming of of everyone, um, local and foreign, and it's a place that I've been privileged to call home since I moved back to Ghana about five years ago. So, Cassandra, as I remember from when you were at McIntyre, you spent, you know, most of your growing up years in Ghana and came to the United States late in your high school career and essentially preparing for college. What, tell us a little bit about that. How did you first decide to United States? Um, how did you end up uh, choosing UVA? Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, so I relocated with my mom to the U.S. Um, for school and and work. Um, my dad had actually been the breadwinner for family, and he had um, he actually lost his sight, became legally blind, and decided that it was in our best interest for my mom to go back to school uh, with myself um, to essentially increase our odds of having better opportunities down the line. And so we ended up in the U.S. And for UVA, my dad had a, a classmate who actually ended up in Charlottesville. I visited Charlottesville one time, saw UVA and decided this was going to be the school that I wanted to go to. And 
worked towards making that happen. Wow, amazing story. The uh, just a lot of a lot of uh, chance and personal relationships that uh, got you to Charlottesville. So you came to the University of Virginia and, of course, graduated from the McIntyre School of Commerce and then spent a number of years working here in the United States. And then in the mid teens, decided to go back and get your graduate degree at Columbia. Tell us a little bit about uh, why you decided to take that next step in your career path and what did you study? Yes. Um, so post McIntyre, all I really wanted to do was to get a job and to travel the world. And I was privileged to get to work with Rolls-Royce. Um, but a series of questions and introspection when I was at Rolls-Royce led me to essentially ask myself questions about where I wanted to be with my career, the impact I wanted to make, and essentially how I wanted to grow. And those set of questions led me to actually pursue a graduate degree at the Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, um, focusing on economic and political development and specializing in um, Africa um, and international affairs. And I did so because I realized as I was working at Rolls-Royce, uh, whether it was on business assurance initiatives or in finance strategy or process improvement, that with each project, I was asking myself questions about, is this something that was done as due diligence when this company was setting up in the mining town I grew up in, for example, or did the government actually make sure that there was a local content policy established and what about the sustainability of jobs when this company is done and there's no mineral resources to be uh, extracted? Like, what's going to happen? And I think those sort of questions made me realize that there was something about whether it was Ghana or Africa, I'm not sure, but there was something about the continent, Africa, that was calling me. And, and that's what made me decide to, to make the what I would call a tough decision to, to go back to grad school because I was, my parents were definitely supportive after the fact, but initially they were quite concerned because I was profaning my income to go down a path which was fairly uncertain back to a country where obviously uh, GDP per capita is still relatively low or across the continent. Um, and so I had to do a, a good job to convince them that this was the route I wanted to take and that it was a route that was worth pursuing. So it sounds like before you entered graduate school, you already had a plan in your mind that that um, additional education at Columbia was going to prepare you for this path to return to Africa that you'd already mapped out in your head. Is that right? Yes, um, but what I actually realized um, while I was in grad school is that the skills I had acquired from whether it was McIntyre or throughout my Rolls-Royce rotations were actually going to be just as essential as the knowledge I, I acquired from my international affairs and economic development classes because, um, and I think I, I got to know that when I did an internship in in Tanzania, I was working for a startup that worked with startups. And for me, it was essentially, um, it was it was great to do that. But what I realized was that these startups were all using um, tools like, you know, whether it was Google Sheets or 
Google Docs to do basic stuff, and it was being done for free. So I realized quite, you know, as a result of, of those interactions, the critical role that technology was playing in actually leveling the playing field. And it made me realize that, okay, when I think of economic development, I don't have to necessarily be in politics or policy making or working for a nonprofit entity to make the kind of difference I wanted to make. And I didn't have to start from zilch. I could actually work with the skill sets I'd acquired, whether it was finance, uh, whether it was my Lean Six Sigma skills acquired during Rolls Royce or, or what have you, um, and, and still be able to make a difference. Um, so, but it, so it was really building up on all the skills I'd acquired prior to and during grad school to figure out what my next step would be. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so there you are, it's 2015. You've made the decision to go back to Africa for the next uh, big step in your career. So here's the part of the conversation where I have to confess, I just don't know a lot about Africa. I mean, I've traveled to many places in the world, but I've never had the opportunity to visit any country in Africa. So I'll be honest with you in saying that I have a hard time wrapping my mind around the enormity of this continent. 1.3 billion people, over 50 countries, almost unimaginable diversity, linguistic, ethnic, religious, and yet some of the world's fastest economic growth rates, population growth rates. How do you think about Africa and how can you help me wrap my mind around this? Yeah, so for me, Africa is home. And although I'm Ghanaian by birth, I've always seen myself as Pan-African. Uh, and as you rightly pointed out, it's over a billion people, um, 54 countries, incredible diversity in terms of language. Even in Ghana alone, we have 46 languages. Um, but I guess the, the good thing is that by... Um, colonization's impact on Africa has it such that as much as there is a lot of diversity in terms of language, we have distinct um, groups of countries who were colonized by the British, the French, the Portuguese, and so there are collections of countries that are Anglophone-speaking countries, there are Francophone-speaking uh, countries, and so there are commonalities in language which allow for cross-border um, conversations to happen and, and trade and what have you. So there's incredible diversity, um, but there's also a lot of similarities. And obviously, there were a lot of, um, what is the word I'm looking for? With colonization, a lot of the borders that were put in place uh, were actually artificially constructed. And so you have countries in East Africa that also speak across countries, similar languages like Swahili. Um, there's Yoruba and um, other languages in West Africa that are quite similar across countries. And so we, um, I mean, it is, it's a big continent, like you said, mm -hmm. um, you know, but population wise, China and India are practically on par with the population of Africa, which on one hand, if you're a company that is thinking about a market for your products and services, it's much easier in some ways, someone could argue, to tackle one market like India because it is one market, 1.3 billion people as opposed to 54 countries with the same amount of, you know, the same number in, in terms of population. 
But when you look at the projections and growth uh, percentages for most countries across Africa, we see that it's you know the population numbers are just going to grow in the coming years. What Africa also has going for it in terms of um, numbers is that the majority of the population, actually more than 50% in many countries are below the age of 25. And that is essentially telling us that there is a growing need for services, jobs, economic growth, etc. And that's where the opportunity lies. And that's where for most of us who decide to move back, we see uh, through the lens of opportunity. Yeah, that opportunity, you know, sometimes referred to as a demographic dividend is, yep. is really an amazing part of the Africa story. I find it so interesting that you brought uh, both India and China into the conversation sort of as comparisons, you know, of course, all three being approximately 1.3, 1.4 billion people. I came of age uh, and entered, began my professional career in the early 1980s, of course, when China was really just getting going in terms of developing its economy. Is that a useful framework that I should be thinking about? I mean, is Africa in 2020 for you and your generation what China was in the 1980s for me and my generation? I think... For me, I'll always say Africa is the next Africa um, because it's because we live in a world that is, is, is constantly evolving, right? And if we kind of make a comparison to China and assume that perhaps we can go along the same trajectory that China did and the things that perhaps maybe work for China could possibly work for Africa might not necessarily it, it wouldn't work out because the world is evolving as we speak and the reason why i also say that is because i i'm a big believer that as a continent as africans as a Ghanaian, we need to acknowledge that we have all the tools and resources needed to catapult the continent or the country into uh, one that has more developed markets um, you know, so China became the China we know, uh, i.e. the world's manufacturing capital through a lot of factors like optimal infrastructure and price competitive local manufacturing talent. Um, but this was at a time when there was obviously a lot of demand from like industrialized nations like the US and a lot of countries in Europe. Um, and so to, you know, to outsource manufacturing activities to China, we are in a a world right now where thanks to advances in AI um, and other factors, those things might not necessarily play out. So it's important that, you know, Africa, the continent and the countries within it find ways and different paths to to kind of also industrialize and in ways that may sometimes mimic China's path and in some ways may not mimic China's path as well. Um, so, Cassandra, let me just interject there, because one thing you've said keeps resonating for me, and that is that you introduced yourself as Ghanaian, but then you very quickly identified as Pan-African, which I thought was very interesting. And so should I think about Africa as 54 different countries, each of which are going to have very independent, separately identifiable trajectories? 
or should I think that somehow the continent itself is going to move forward in a more integrated sort of way? And that's a question that I, I, I believe um, companies working on the continent struggle with, um, whether or not to tackle the, the countries which are more stable politically or the countries which are bigger in terms of population size and therefore would probably have more of a um, demand equation. Um, or to tackle it in terms of blocks. So you have West Africa, you have South Africa, you have East Africa, and North Africa, which sometimes is tagged on with the Middle East. So it mostly tends to be, you know, when most people talk about Sub-Saharan Africa, they're referring to East Africa, West Africa, and South Africa. And each of those places tend to have a block of countries that try to find ways to come together as a unit and argue for initiatives to kind of Im improve their odds when it comes to trade um, and other factors. So you have ECOWAS, which is the Economic Community of West African States. You have um, COMESA, and then there's one for South Africa as well. But when I look at how, whether it's Facebook or Google or any of the other big tech companies have approached the continent, they've really been opportunistic in terms of trying to figure out, okay, which are the countries that, um, you know, whether it's from a GDP per capita or from a policy perspective in some cases, or from a population and numbers perspective, can allow us to make a dent in the continent, um, do, do we tackle? I guess we should remind ourselves also that the path of development in, certainly in China and, and I think in India as well, has been regional. It's not like the entirety of China all developed in lockstep by by any sense, and I'm, I'm guessing that will probably be the case in Africa. Let's turn to focus a little bit on what your work is all about at Google. So um, my understanding is you've had a couple of opportunities in the five years that you've been with Google in Africa. You worked in the predecessor company that became C-squared, and now you're more focused on um, developing um, partnerships around the um, Android platform. So, you know, as I was reading a little bit about your background, I thought to myself, wow, she is really right there developing that communications backbone, that infrastructure that's going to be so essential to the future development of Africa. Tell us a little bit about what you do and, and how these projects are playing out. Serendipitously, um, I found myself in the tech sector post-Columbia, um, ended up in um, Ghana working with Google. And part of how I ended up here was because um, Google at the time had come up with uh, an access, internet access project known as Project Link, which was building fiber um fiber connectivity across um, Ghana, Uganda, and other countries yet to be determined. And at the time, they were looking for um, someone to kind of lead their business operations in Ghana. And, and that made sense for me because I could see the linkage between uh, internet access and economic development. Um, and so why is that relevant? So internet access across... Um, across Africa is, is quite essential. The majority of people's first and only way of accessing the internet is through their mobile devices. 
and a majority of people um, cannot access the internet because of affordability when it comes to mobile devices as well as data and the lack of digital skills and literacy. Um, so where Google came into the equation with my first role was actually from the supply perspective, from the infrastructure perspective. So the thought behind that was that if you could try and find a way to increase the supply of fiber connectivity, then that could in a way hopefully help the uh, whether it was the mobile app operators who are known as carriers in the US but and, and carry a lot of sway in, in most of the markets across Africa, help them drive prices down, or um, the ISPs as well. And so that was sort of from, from an access perspective, how to drive prices down. And subsequently in my current role, as I mentioned, the majority of people's first and only way of accessing the internet is through their mobile devices. And a majority of them are on the Android platform because of the affordability context. Um, a lot of people cannot afford um, iPhones, uh, the price points at which they currently are. And so my team partners with a lot of people, whether it's the telcos, the device manufacturers, the um, and sometimes government entities to figure out how do we drive prices down. And not only that, once people are online, how do we make sure that they are part of the digital economy, that they are actually transacting, that they're actually consuming content that is relevant to them. And, and, and the, sort of that's what we, we focus on. Yep. So that's interesting that Android is so dominant. Is that simply because Google got there first? Uh, or does it seem to you from a competitive standpoint that you know the continent just isn't as great of a focus for Apple? Um, no, I think it really has to do with the affordability context. So just to give an example, um, I don't know what the average price of an iPhone is now. Um, if, assuming it's even $500 or $400, GDP per capita is, um, you know, across the continent, it's probably $1,800. And if I can try and, I think the GSMA reports that in contrast to 2017, when the average affordability of one gigabyte as a percentage of monthly income across Africa was like 8.6%. In 2018, it was 6.8%. And, and, and that's great. But ideally, I think we would like to get to 2%. So most people can't even afford um, the data much more the devices. And so $300 or $500 may seem like nothing if you have a credit system that allows you to actually get the device and pay in installments. But historically, most people across Africa have not been able to access credit because of a lack of data, um, amongst other things. So people pay in cash. You buy your phone upfront, and then you deal with the results later on. And so most people could not afford to buy uh, the expensive iPhones, whereas with the Android devices you have a whole spectrum you can get right now we've worked with device manufacturers to get devices to be priced as low as 35 dollars and then you can get your thousand and thousand plus dollar device if you can also afford it so it's the broad spectrum of devices that allow i think android the you know the the platform to be as prevalent as it is across africa wow so many 
issues to unpack in what you just said. So you're talking about, first of all, really low GDP per capita as the broad context. Then you're talking about the expense of the device that has to be purchased, the lack of financial system to be able to finance the purchase of that de device, the cost of the data, which sounds shockingly high. And then you also refer to the challenges of literacy. And I suppose there's some percentage of the population that doesn't have the skills that are necessary to interact with a phone. Is that is that assumption correct? Yep, yep. So when you add all that up today across the total population of 1.3 billion or so, what percentage of the population has access to the internet? Definitely less than 50%. I believe it's about 45% have access to the internet. Um, yeah, currently. And it is it has actually improved quite a bit in the last uh, two to three years because of initiatives um, like Android Go, which allowed for uh, the device, the Android device price points to come down to as much as uh, to as little as thirty-five dollars, as I mentioned before. Um, and given that most people access the internet through their mobile devices, it it has definitely helped. But there's definitely a lot more room for improvement. And so, one of the initiatives, for example, that was recently tackled by um, Google in conjunction with a company in the biggest telco in, in Kenya actually called Safaricom was really trying to figure out how do we enable people to actually use um, their mobile uh, money wallets. And I, I know we'll probably delve into that to actually serve as a credit base on which to buy phones on credit and paid installments over, the, over a period of 12 months. And that, I think if that model can be replicated, and I, I do believe it's been replicated in different forms and norms across Africa. Um, it's called device financing. If people can, you know, through different ways and means, pay for their phones uh, on credit in installments over a period of time, then the number of people who are able to get smartphones um, should be able to go up over time. And with that, the number of people who are able to access the internet and use it for a variety of value-added activities should also go up. You said earlier in our conversation that, you know, you made a pivot in your career because you wanted to do work, forget the exact words you used, that had meaning and you felt you were adding value in a, in, in a positive uh, way and making an impact. And, and, and boy, I'm really, I'm really getting that now that, that uh, I'm starting to understand what it is you do and the potential impact that you and your colleagues are going to have over time. As you think about that impact, Cassandra, what makes you most excited? In other words, think about the use cases of what it is that you're building and, and then kind of mapping that on to the future economic growth of, of Africa. Where can you see those big gains being made as people have access to the internet and, and can communicate digitally? And nearly half a billion people subscribe to mobile services across Sub-Saharan Africa, which is about 45% of the entire population. Uh, okay. Small and medium enterprises account for nine out of 10 businesses in Africa. 
And on average, 34% of businesses in Sub-Saharan Africa are informal versus 9% in North America. And yet a lot of these SMEs cannot get the requisite capital to, um, to scale and expand their businesses. There's a report that there's a financing gap of about $136 billion. Um, these small businesses are cash-strapped, low-margin ventures, um, and as I mentioned, they can barely access credit. And that's because historically they've not been able to, whether it's, um, you know, have the requisite data to prove that they are creditworthy, etc. Uh, but now, um, through, you know, the advancements in technology, through mobile money, which is actually enabling people to be able to build credit history and to be able to get payments from people across the world in some cases, um, just in the last month or in the last year, in 2020 through September, almost $800 million has been raised by African startups in sectors like fintech, uh, energy, logistics and transport, healthcare, agriculture, um, which is about, um, I think, 74% year-on-year growth in Africa startup investment. And this is all kind of predicated on tech, the tech sector, right? And so when I think yeah, about... Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think without the gains in internet penetration that you're describing, probably, you know, hardly any of that investment would actually be happening, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. And so, I, I mean, for me, it's... When I think of my work, when I was working in the U.S., um, you know, I definitely... I don't want to say I wasn't doing meaningful work. I was doing meaningful work. Um, I was learning a lot of skills. But when I think about the impact that my work makes and the meaning it makes, I, I think the work I'm currently doing has um, cross-generational impact. You know, I'm changing livelihoods. I'm helping companies scale their businesses. And, and I don't do it in a way that is obviously direct. But when I think about the impact I'm making, I'm able to make those connections in my head. And I, I definitely feel a good sense of satisfaction. But I'm able to absolutely. I mean that, you know, that infrastructure, that core infrastructure, whether it's the electrical grid, whether it's the transportation system, or in your case, the um, communication system, it's it's fundamental to economic development. I mean, economic development just can't happen without it. So, um, so I, I I bet you feel really uh, a sense of satisfaction and 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 deservedly deservedly so. Let's. I'd love to just dig a little bit deeper into some of the financial themes you were just touching on, and you know, so-called fintech. Um, so, if I understood you right, you're seeing that as internet penetration is increasing, it's allowing a lot of those SMEs and participants in the informal economy to get access to credit. Is it also helping on the individual level in terms of just basic financial inclusion for households? Is that a relevant part of this story? When you talk about fintech in Africa, you can't talk about that without talking about um, mobile money. And just for, I guess, the audience that's not aware of what mobile money is, it's a service that um, stores funds in the secure electronic account linked to your mobile phone number. And it allows you to store, send, and receive money um, through that means. And it was started, you know, in PESA circa 2007. And just last year, globally, you have over 1 billion registered mobile money accounts and accountants. And what it has done for financial inclusion 
um, beyond access and usage is, the, I mean, the use cases are so many. Um, when you think about the contribution to like the sustainable development goals, for example, it's contributing to about 15 out of the 17, whether it's no poverty, zero hunger, etc. And why that is, is because it's increasingly being used beyond um, transfers and payments to more adjacent products such as credit, savings, and insurance. Um, and just to kind of give an example, as I mentioned before, uh, for example, Safaricom in Kenya was able to get people, is currently working to get people to upgrade their phones from 2G to 3G by allowing qualifying customers um, and qualifying, I, I believe there's a linkage between that and their credit history through their mobile money accounts um, to be able to qualify them to to upgrade from a 3G device to a 4G smartphones and pay them in very low installments, um, which is as little as uh, 20 cents, a, 20 US cents a day, 20 Kenyan shillings a day. Um, and, and, and that's truly transformational. Um, and then just sort of thinking about it in today's context of COVID, for example, the role that, you know, mobile money has played in, in COVID is, is unlike any other. Um, it has truly kind of, COVID was, I mean, it's truly sad, the, you know, the catastrophic nature it's had on, on health and, and the number of people that have died as a result of it. But what it has done in terms of hastening the adoption of mobile financial services and moving most parts of Africa towards a, a cashless society is truly transformational. Um, so a lot of companies now, um, from your e-commerce companies to your mortar and brick uh, mom and pop shops, are now incentivizing customers to use cashless payments, mostly mobile money, um, for a lot of products and services they wouldn't historically have been able to do. So now you have people ordering stuff online using whether it's Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, um, as a way to really order and pay for services that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to do so. Additionally, wow. um, yeah, I mean, there's so many use cases for... for yeah, um, but that's really interesting that you focus on that one in particular, because again, coming back to this um, idea of possibly drawing some parallels to the China experience. I think people who have watched tech development in China and particularly the development of um, Alibaba and the payment system, Alipay and WeChat Pay would tell you that it was an earlier pandemic that was largely limited yeah. to China that caused or, or really contributed to the rapid, rapid growth of those platforms a decade ago. So I think that's so interesting that yeah. you're telling us that now you're seeing that same theme um, sort of replicate in, um, in the African context. Yeah. So are we, I mean, I can't help but then ask a question about credit cards or is like credit cards just not going to happen in 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 africa is this a so-called uh you know are we just jumping right over credit cards into the world of of tech payments or, or sorry digital payments yeah personally i don't see credit cards happening um so we've always been uh, i mean with the possible exception of south africa um across, I don't know, East and West Africa, 
we've always been a very cash cash driven society and the concept of um credit is um is is fairly foreign um but again i think with mobile money and establishing a credit history and being able to actually borrow against that um that idea could change but the traditional concept of a credit card against a bank um or any sort of traditional means of banking i don't see that happening but there are like so for example Ghana for example has found a way to make um and i think a lot of the countries now Tanzania and Kenya as well have made mobile banking mobile money uh interoperable with your traditional banking because there's they've seen that what it's actually also driving is a lot of people who historically would not save with banks are now able to um save with banks through their mobile money platforms um and so it's actually driving adoption of financial services in ways that historically would not have happened you're preaching to the choir on this one i mean you know if there's anything i've learned in 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 my life both as a practitioner and now as an academic if that capital formation doesn't happen through savings it's very hard for countries to be able to develop the sort of sustainable capital markets that are needed for development. Having said that though, you did mention a moment ago fairly impressive numbers in terms of um external capital that's coming into the continent in in a bunch of different sectors that you mentioned. Um do you how do I ask this? Do you think does the world get Africa yet? I mean, I'm sure some part of you must see yourself as sort of an evangelizer for Africa and you're trying to tell people outside of Africa what is going on and the enormity of the opportunity. I'm curious, do you find when you talk to people that they're kind of all in on the African story or do you get sort of strange quizzical looks like they're not quite sure what you're talking about? How do you, how do you see yeah, it? Yeah, I'm trying to find a politically correct way to answer this because it's it's an everyday struggle. Um, but yeah, I the world is the world is not quite grasp Africa yet and and sometimes I don't blame the world because when you look, you know, a traditional media or you know, traditional media all you generally see about Africa is um is not good news and so you tend to kind of downplay um the positive stories that are coming out of Africa but just to give some additional numbers for context so just last week from a startup perspective um Stripe which is an American online payment processing company um acquired Paystack uh Lagos Nigeria based technology company uh for 200 million 200 plus million dollars um and then in august uh similarly um weldremit uh acquired sendwave a kenyan company for 500 million dollars so the the ones that see the potential um truly get it uh and and they're making the requisite investments and i think by the time the the whole world sees it um those that have made the the due diligence and requisite investments would be running away with with the bulk part of the cake but even with the companies and the people that are present on the continent um there's still a lot of room for improvement because 
when you're in a room and conversations with, um, you know, countries like China, India, Brazil, you know, the U.S., Europe, etc. happening, Africa is always, um, I mean, as a continent, not even as a country, right? Africa as a continent is always um, kind of on the periphery and not necessarily the, the main topic at hand. And I think, and, and that's why I really believe that Africa has to prioritize Africa. Africans have to invest in Africa. And we need to tell the story of Africa in such a way that, you know, as someone who may not be as familiar with the continent, finds, um, I don't know, that something motivates them to want to know more about the continent, to want to invest in the continent, to want to actually understand why, um, why we may not be where we need to be or where we should be, but it doesn't stop us from eventually getting there. Um, so I'm well, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm very optimistic about the continent, um, and I'm optimistic about the youth, like the demographic dividend, and what that means for the continent. No, I I couldn't agree with you more, and I have to say, there's just sort of a palpable sense of energy from this conversation. And and to be perfectly honest, if I were a young graduate from McIntyre or even a current student at McIntyre, and I was asking myself, what's going to happen over the next 40, 50 years of my career that's going to really create those kind of uh, pivotal opportunities? And boy, I think Africa's got to be right at the top of that list. Uh, it certainly is for me. <laughs> yeah. I, well, and, you know, you and, and you know, I can I can see, you know, this conversation has really helped to illuminate that pivotal decision that you made a number of years ago to position yourself uh, uh, professionally and personally um, against this this future growth. I'd love to ask, we're running a little short of time, but I'd just love to ask briefly a little bit about your, you know, kind of day to day. What's it like to be a young professional woman in the tech industry in, in Africa? Does that present opportunities? Does it present challenges? And I'd, I'd love also, Cassandra, to ask you just to touch on advice that you might have for other young students, um, women and men. Um, international students and American students, what sorts of advice would you yeah. have as, as they uh, continue their professional journeys? Okay. Um, so as a professional woman, um, when I moved back to Ghana late 2014, early 2015, um, I was quite impressed. Um, and I say that because working in the tech sector, three of the four big telcos in Ghana had female CEOs. The country manager for Google in Ghana was a woman. And, and that was great to see. Um, but again, I was also a little bit disappointed because, um, when you look at research, um, SSA generally has the highest female labor participation rate compared to other regions. But when you look closely at the type of jobs, um, that are held by women, it's, it's less than rosy, um, because a lot of the women are in low paid, less secure jobs. And, and that obviously... Mm -hmm. Um, has its downsides. And so when I think about the work I do and the impact it has on the less formal sectors and how we can essentially catapult them into a different uh, stratosphere when it comes to job security, I'm, I'm sort of encouraged by that. 
again, as, as a young mother uh, working across Africa, and I don't want to say this and, and bash the U.S., but the U.S. is the only OECD country without a national statutory paid maternity, paternity, or parental leave. And as someone who's, you know, you know, had two kids um, since working with Google across Africa and been able to have the time with my kids and while knowing my job was secure as well as being able to fully contribute and be present when I'm at work, I'm, I'm truly thankful for that. So I do think that that's a factor that, you know, one should look at should they want to start um, a family. Um, but I have no regrets um, about uh, moving back and the opportunities it has presented to me. There are definitely some downsides because as you rightly pointed out, it's a continent where the numbers may not be as big as other parts of the world. And so from a, you know, whether you're working in a company that looks at promos in a certain way where numbers matter and, um, you know, your numbers may not be as big as someone who is covering a bigger market. And so your opportunities to advance might not be as great. Um, you've got to kind of figure out a way to tell your story in a way that makes sense for you. Um, and I think that's where you've got to figure out what, what is meaningful for you. There's also the conversation about salaries and, you know, kind of what you have to give up sometimes some, somewhat to move. Um, but in the long run, um, it does pay off, um, even sometimes in terms of numbers. Um, when I think about the advice I have for students, young alums at Tetera, I think you've got to do the work when it comes to your career and self-development. No one else can. Um, if you, you know, it's important that you know yourself well, be introspective, ask yourself questions. And it's also important to connect the dots because life has a way of telling us exactly where we need to be and when. And if you don't listen to yourself well enough and you listen to all the voices around you, you might make choices that in the moment may seem like they're the best call to take, but, you know, down the line may not be the best for you. Um, so if there's one thing that I can say, it's just um, be introspective, ask yourself questions and connect the dots when you can. Um, I wanted to do meaningful work. I didn't exactly know what that meant, but by trying new things, asking my question, asking myself questions and listening to how I felt, I've ended up here and, uh, and I like where I am, but I'm still asking myself questions. So I don't know where I'll end up next. No, and it turns out, I think for all of us to be a, a lifelong journey, but I, I so value that advice and uh, all the components of it and your, your focus on uh, the ambition to do meaningful work. I mean, I can tell you, I, I hear that question more and more from our students. Um, you know, our students are just as high achieving as they were when, when you were here. But I think for many of them, that question burns in their mind. How can they take their McIntyre education? How can they take the formative years of their careers where they start that professional journey? And then you know turn that into work that is purposeful and meaningful and and um, and, and and valuable to the the broader society. You're clearly doing that, and I just couldn't be more excited to have gotten to spend the time with you and 
and hear about all you're doing. Cassandra, I just really want to thank you for taking time out of, I'm sure, a busy day to have this conversation with us. It's been really great to reconnect with you after your time away from Charlottesville. And I hope uh, once we get through this pandemic that we'll have an opportunity to get reacquainted in person one day. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Global Commerce Exchange is produced at the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce by Rick Carew with support from McIntyre student Priti Nandi. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the guests and host and do not reflect the official policy or position of either the school or the university. Sign up for future shows at globalcommerce.substack.com and subscribe to Global Commerce Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners and to those who submitted such great questions. We look forward to being with you again soon. And as always, go Hoos!